96 FM. Very good to catch up with you on the opinion line. Your video is very popular with our listeners. A few things that, that I wanted to talk to you about. But first of all, what's your background? What gives you the ability to break the stuff down so easy? Well, thank you for having me on, PJ. It's, re- it's really good. M- m- my name's John Campbell. I'm living in England. I was born in Scotland, but I have proud Irish ancestry on several sides of my family. So it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really good to talk on uh, Island Radio. Um, but basically, I was a nurse. I was a psychiatric nurse and a general nurse. And then I went into nurse education and I was something called a nurse tutor in the old days. And then um, one of our prime ministers thought it was a good idea to move nurse education into higher education. So we all shifted into universities. So uh, at that point, I had sort of a level of academia thrust upon me. So I started doing some writing and doing some some research. But for all that time, for the 27 years, I still taught student nurses. So I, I I think I am practiced at taking scientific concepts, physiological concepts and explaining them so that first, second, third year student nurses can understand. Which is what you've been doing with a series of videos throughout the pandemic of varying lengths and various complexities, which is great to watch. Let's deal with the one, the most recent story this week, John, which is that Pfizer have a drug in testing using body chemistry against coronavirus and maybe, to use that awful cliched word, a game changer. Yeah, well, this, 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 this is a drug called a protease inhibitor. So the idea with this is it will, in order for the virus to replicate properly, it has to break down proteins. And this will stop the virus breaking down proteins. Therefore, the virus won't be able to replicate. Therefore, it will interrupt the life cycle of the virus and you won't get viral replication. And if this works, it will be tremendously important. This will be an antiviral. Hmm. Now, everyone, of course, has heard of antibiotics. We've got we've had lots of those that they came in in the Second World War. They became uh, readily available to the public in the in the 19 early 1950s. But what we haven't been good at is making antivirals. Now, there are a few. There's one called acyclovir that's good for the cold sores you get Mm. in your mouth. Zolvirax. Yes, that's exactly what acyclovir is, yes. Uh, And and there's a few that we use for HIV. And there's a couple that we use for hepatitis, uh, hepatitis C as well. But other than that, we're absolutely useless at treating viruses. So if this, if this works as an antiviral, then yes, that would be a game changer. Hmm. Because if we had an, an effective antiviral against SARS coronavirus 2, what we would do, as long as this was cheap, readily available and safe, is that as soon as someone started developing symptoms, we would just treat it. Yeah. And it would go away. You'd get a prescription from the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Just like getting a urinary retract infection or a bit of a lung infection, you take an antibiotic and it goes away. If we had that antiviral, and that's what's been worked on. How would that combat the infectiousness? Because we know from the start, it's not just you get sick to whatever level you get sick, but it's you can make all those around you sick. How would we combat that? Yeah, it's a good question, PJ. So so the, the, the reason that people around us get sick is because we shed the virus. But of course, if we were giving this uh, viral inhibitor, if this viral inhibitor worked, then that would stop the body cells making the virus in the first place. Therefore, we wouldn't be able to spread the virus onto other people. So it would, it would kill two birds with one antiviral, which would be absolutely brilliant. And would this work with variants of the virus? 
With the variants that we have so far, it probably would, because most of the variants at the moment are affecting the spike protein, this spike protein, which is actually the infectious part that latches into this receptor in our in the human cells to cause the infectivity. But the uh, the, 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 these these proteases are necessary for construction of all of the protein of the virus. So you need proteins to make the spikes and you need protein to make the body of the virus. And all of those proteins would end up being the wrong size if we had an effective protease inhibitor. So it would stop all of viral production potentially. Now, that's not to say the viral couldn't, virus couldn't work out some clever way around it eventually. Hmm. It would depend exactly how this how this protease inhibitor worked. And we don't know that yet because all we've got is a commercial code number for it. We don't even know the chemical of it. Only the scientists in Pfizer know that at the moment. So Pfizer now say they're testing. When do you think, if it were all successful, that our doctor would be writing prescriptions? It, the, the, the earliest possible that this could be licensed is November. Hmm. Now, it's at, it's at phase one clinical trials at the moment. Basically, phase one clinical trials are carried out on, on healthy volunteers. And it's not to see if the drug in this case has an antiviral effect. It's to make sure the drug is safe, that it's tolerated, that it's not toxic, and importantly, to work out the dose. So, so with this, this new drug that Pfizer are talking about, it's got very powerful demonstrated antiviral effects in the lab, literally in glass. Hmm. Does that mean it works in humans? We haven't got a clue. No one knows. That's why we're doing the phase one clinical trials. But obviously, because of the potent uh, antiviral properties in vitro, it's likely that it would have antiviral effects at tolerable doses in people. Okay. Exciting times, though, I guess, and we'll follow it with great interest. Let's talk a little bit about vaccines for a while, because we're looking at the UK and their vaccine rollout. We're green with envy because of the speed of it. We got a problem getting our vaccines rolled out here. Yes. Should we be looking at manufacturing our own? Oh, absolutely, PJ. 100%. It it just grieves me um, to to see, you know, a a country like Ireland with with all the the medical expertise and the intelligentsia in it. Uh, And and yet it's just lacking this basic vaccine production. Now, making vaccines, okay, you need a pharmaceutical plant for it. You need people that can do this. But but really, the, the, the technology to do this is now not that sophisticated. And quite a lot of it is off the shelf. So I would absolutely love to see a completely domestic, indigenous um, vaccine production within Ireland itself. So you're not dependent on um, anyone outside that you can just produce your own. Well, I, I don't know how much you know about the south of Ireland and about Cork, which is where we are, but mm. we've got every major pharmaceutical yeah. in yeah. the world has a base yeah. somewhere in the south of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. reckon we should be making use of that? Well, the, the facilities you have now not may not readily transpose mm into vaccine producing facilities but companies like Pfizer for them it would be a relatively simple matter to transfer the technology for making vaccines into plants in in Ireland which is exactly what I would love to see happening and then that can carry on producing vaccines for some time you see Everyone, I don't know, but you've had your, um, I'm fortunate I've had my first dose. I'm going to need a second dose at some point in the next couple of months. But with the constant changes in the virus, with these mutations and these variants, it's now looking probable. It's now looking probable that we will need a third dose 
perhaps this autumn or next winter. So the Oxford University team, for example, that originally collaborated with with uh, AstraZeneca, um, they are working on um, a new vaccine now that will be effective against the South Africa variant and, and what we now call the UK variant and indeed the Brazilian variant. So it may be that we need this top up for the next couple of winters. Well, who knows? It could be two, three, four winters until this virus becomes so weak and endemic that it basically goes away or, or, or it does indeed physically go away, which is what I'm, I'm hoping for. Is there a possibility that it could just fizzle out if the vaccines are strong enough and we have stuff like a good antiviral? Could it just fizzle out? If we have both of those, I believe it could. Now, there's, there's two views on this. One is that uh, it is going to be eradicated. The other is that it's going to become endemic. Hmm. Explain that for listeners. What does that mean, John? Sure, sure. Well, well like, like, for example, we get influenza every year and there's two sorts of influenza. There's influenza A and influenza B. Now, the influenza A, that they, that, that's sort of the new mutations of the influenza that, that cause new infections because our immune system is not used to it. The influenza B is endemic all the time. So someone is spreading it to someone else who's spreading it to someone else. So it's always there. So a disease which is endemic is always present. So, so for example, malaria is endemic to parts of Africa. Um, HIV now, sadly, is, is endemic in, in, in Ireland and in England. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of here. It's kind of difficult to get rid of. So, so will it become endemic? Um, I, I'm hoping not. Because, and the reason I hope not is in 2002, 2003, there was an outbreak of SARS coronavirus 1. Uh, very similar virus to SARS coronavirus 2, which is the current pandemic. And that was eradicated. That virus now no longer exists in the wild. Mm. So it, it will take it will take a significant vaccination campaign. A therapeutic, of course, would massively help to reduce the transmission. Um, and, and we're certainly going to have this SARS coronavirus 2 with us for a few seasons. But the big hope is, in fact, that th this will happen. This is pretty certain that as more and more people get vaccinated, we know that the vaccine is very protective against hospitalization, severe disease and, of course, death. The vaccines are less protective against just catching the infection. They, they do protect us against catching the infection. I mean, but the, the, the latest data from the AstraZeneca vaccine from the United States, for example, shows that we've got a 76% less chance of catching the infection. But so far, it's looking like 100% less chance of being hospitalized and dying. So what it may mean is that people get SARS coronavirus 2 and essentially COVID-19 for some time. But if they've been vaccinated, that would change that from a life-threatening illness to a bit of a minor inconvenience. Mm. And then, of course, if we had an antiviral to throw into the mix on oh, top of that. Th th then we would, we would be clobbering the virus every time it raised its ugly head and there'd be no virus left to transmit. Absolutely. The more ways you can attack this virus, the better. We're just a bit limited at the moment. Talk to me a little bit about the scare that we recently had, which some people felt was blown out of proportion with regard to the AstraZeneca and blood clots. You did a fascinating video, John, on how you personally think from your own nursing experience that might have happened. The way with the injections are given. Yeah. 
Yeah. <clears throat> There's been kind of a drip, drip, drip of information on this. Originally, it looked like the AstraZeneca vaccine was causing blood clots. And of course, um, when we think of blood clots, we tend to think of the blood clots in the leg, what we call a deep venous thrombosis. And bits can fly off to the lungs, what we call a pulmonary embolism. But it now looks like the difference between the general population the Pfizer vaccine and the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, there's no difference in those kind of blood clots. But then there was a few rare cases. And when I say a few rare cases, from memory, it was something like 80 million vaccines in Europe. And I think it was about, was it about 11 cases? It was a very small number of cases. And what this was, it's a special sort of blood clot, um, a special sort of thrombus. And it's in the veins that drain the brain called the cerebral sinus veins. So there was a very small number of blood clots in these cerebral sinus veins. And there was some suggestion that that was correlated with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, um, because the numbers are so small, it was impossible to be definitive. But the UK Medicines Agency and the European Medicines Agency were all happy to carry on with the vaccine. And then something came out from, from Denmark and, and again, we don't know about this, but the Danish authorities have changed the guidelines. Now, what this is, is when you give an intramuscular injection, you give it into the deltoid muscle of the arm for four vaccines and you, you stick your needle in. Hmm. Of course, you can't see where you're sticking it because you haven't got X-ray eyes. So the odds are it's in the muscle where you want to put it. But of course, to some extent, through muscles, we have blood vessels. So there's a remote chance that when you stick the needle in, the needle, the end of the needle where the vaccine squirts out is not in the muscle. It's actually in a blood vessel. So what I always do when I stick my needles in, I stick the needle in and I think, oh, is it in the muscle or is it in a blood vessel? And what you do is you pull back on the syringe. Hmm. Now, if blood comes back into the syringe, you see that that would mean you're in a vessel. So you would take it out, get another dose and you'd try again. Now, this is very, very rare in the deltoid muscle. But in Denmark, they are suggesting that giving the vaccine, whether, whichever vaccine it is, that in, in Denmark, they're saying give the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine this way. They're saying you have to make sure you don't give it into a blood vessel. So they stick the needle in and all the guidelines in Denmark are saying thou shalt aspirate before you squirt it in. Now, that's different from the guidelines in the UK. I don't know what the guidelines are in Ireland. I suspect they are probably fairly similar. So so um, now there's no evidence for this. This is just the, a few mm. Danish. Yeah, but just a, as, a, as a nurse yourself, John, going back along, you would always have done that. I, I, Absolutely. It's it's absolutely ingrained into you from when you're 18 years old, when you give your first injection. Because yes. you don't want to be injecting blind. Uh, you, you don't want to be injecting into a, into a, a blood vessel. You want to be injecting into the muscle. Mm. Is there a possibility that they will look further at that? Is, is it just a theory or is... Well, um, I'm trying to publicise this at the moment. I'm trying to contact some politicians. And uh, to tell you the truth, I haven't got very far at the moment. Yeah. So, so what, why not do it and then see? So, so first of all, we're not sure that the cerebral venous, that this cerebral sinus vein thrombosis is related to the vaccines. But if it was, this is just one variable we, we could easily get rid of. Okay. Talk to me finally about many people have contacted our program and say, why aren't you talking about ivermectin? And and the science on ivermectin was difficult to understand. Now, you did a fascinating video where you looked at the data and 
I think, John, and I don't want to misinterpret you, I think you believe that ivermectin should perhaps be there in the armory. It's interesting, you know, ivermectin came out oh, a long time back, a good 30 years back now, and the people that actually developed actually won a Nobel Prize for it. It was such a major step forward in treating parasites. Mm that were endemic all over Africa. And it's on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines. People have to have ivermectin. To, otherwise, they would die from parasitic diseases or all over. And it's used a lot in Ireland. It's an important uh, veterinary med medication. But recently, there's been a lot of evidence that it's also useful for treating viral infections. Now, I interviewed, I interviewed a doctor called Dr. Tess Laurie, who's done a lot of work on this. And uh, basically what she did was a meta-analysis. So th there's various trials been done all over the world. And what she's got, she's got some clever software. She puts all that together. And, and what that showed was um, it did demonstrate that there is a, a therapeutic effect from ivermectin. Now, of course, we have to stress that um, you must never take any medicine that your own doctor has not prescribed. We, we don't want people going around taking their dog's worm tablets here. No, no we, cer we certainly don't. But from, from the evidence I've looked at, it does appear that ivermectin has an antiviral effect. Now, this really needs to be taken up by governments. Now, part of the problem here is ivermectin is an established drug. So after so many years, the drug companies uh, lose. It's like a copyright. Mm. So basically anyone can make it. It's as cheap as paracetamol, isn't it? Oh, it, it, it's it, it's yes. It's, it's basically free to make. Um, I mean, li li literally, li literally a few pennies to make it, it is. It, it's, it's incredibly cheap. But, of course, that means that the drug companies can't make too much money out of it. And because it's often drug companies that authorise these or organise uh, some of the clinical trials, there's no real motivation to do that. So what I feel is that governments need to take this on. Governments need to say, look, we've got a drug here that could be, stress could be, uh, a cheap safe, effective, antiviral drug. And this could work against different viruses. We were talking about that magic bullet we need to treat viruses. And is it safe to the point where, you know, we say about some drugs, your doctor will give it to you and they'll say, look, it might work. It certainly won't do you any harm, but it might work. Is ivermectin in that in that category, do you think? Given that it's been used so extensively, and uh, I, I can't remember the figures now, but, you know, a couple of billion doses have been given out. It's well recognised what, what the safe doses are. Now, with any drug, you can never guarantee it's safe. Yeah. Any drug that's actually going to work, you've got the potential for side effects. But that's why we have doctors. They, they monitor the risk and they monitor the benefit. But I really feel until a government takes on the responsibility for doing a proper controlled clinical trial on this, it could be that that humankind is missing out on what is potentially uh, a very comprehensive, wide-scale wide uh, antiviral. And that is just tragic because people are always dying of viral infections. It's been fascinating to speak with you for the programme and I will, we will direct people to your videos uh, through our social media because they are fascinating. John, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, PJ. Good to talk to you. Corks 96 FM.